Welcome to the Boston Ed Talks podcast series, where we dive a little deeper into this year's Boston Ed Talks. The Boston Ed Talks are an annual celebration of Greater Boston's innovative teachers and teaching. We're going to learn a little bit more about these teachers, what makes them special, what makes their teaching special, and how you can apply what they've learned to your classrooms. I'm your host, Ethan Bronner. Today we're talking with Diane Kelly and Will Schwartz of Revere. Diane is the superintendent and Will teaches math in high school there. Revere has made enormous amount of progress by focusing on teacher collaboration, changing the way in which teachers are evaluated, and helping teachers drive the curriculum changes in the school system. Will, you came to Revere when? So this is finished or starting rather my third year in Revere. So I'm actually a relative newbie to the district. And Diane, you've been the superintendent for not that many years. Uh, I actually became superintendent about the same time that Will started in Revere. Uh, I am also beginning my third year as superintendent, but I was assistant superintendent for five years prior to that and actually have spent most of my career in Revere. This will be uh, my 22nd year there. So, Will, when you came to Revere, uh, as I understand it, there was a certain skepticism that you brought with you that you have slightly uh, walked away from. Tell us about that process. So I think that when I first met with Diane and we signed our contract and she sort of gave some sort of throwaway phrase about how we value teachers. And this is the kind of thing you hear from every administrator in every district and every policymaker. But as a teacher, I've learned to have a certain amount of skepticism toward this because the way you judge that really is how they treat teachers, provide leadership opportunities, um, the way that teachers are respected in terms of their planning time and respected as intellectuals within the profession. And so I, I came with this, this skepticism that this was just another administrator giving me this throwaway phrase. But as I got to, to know the district better, I saw so many different opportunities for teacher leadership. Um, in, and one thing in particular that stands out in Revere is the opportunity for teacher-led professional development. So in Revere, teachers are seen as experts, and teachers teach each other sort of the best practices, what they're doing in their classrooms. And Diane, this is something that I gather you inherited, that you didn't begin. Is that right? That's right. Uh, my predecessor, Paul Dakin, was very much committed to teacher leadership, and uh, he was such a tremendous mentor to me over the years. My leadership style has uh, grown very much from the roots that he, he founded. And, you know, one of the things, having been a teacher, I understand firsthand what it's like to be a teacher and what it's like to feel somewhat devalued or almost like your expertise is not valued when others, both within the district and outside of the district, are trying to dictate what the work is going to be and how you're going to do it when they don't relate to your particular context in your classroom. So, so, so what does it mean now to empower teachers in Revere? What does it mean? Uh, well, I think the the biggest leap we've made, I think a lot of districts have made the small move of helping in, in, engage teachers in leadership through professional development by honoring their expertise, as Will mentioned, having them lead the professional development. But we've gone a step further in Revere, and we've established the Revere Educators Leadership Board, which we call the RELB for short. Um, there is a board comprised of teachers and administrators who oversee 
six councils that make decisions in a variety of areas for the district. They determine what the professional development is going to be. They do work on organizational structure. They did a big research project when we were struggling with enrollment in our middle schools. Um, we were forced into a lottery situation where the students have to enter a lottery to determine which middle school they're going to attend. That was due to overcrowding. And our organizational structure board made of comprised of teachers and administrators did a year-long research study on ways to reorganize middle school, do other things, see if we could structure the grades differently, if that would ease the overcrowding. In the end, we weren't able to come up with a different solution, but I think that Everybody in the community, including the parents and um, the local elected officials, understood better the need for the lottery after they were able to present all of the research they did and all of the different ideas that they looked into. And all this extra work that you give the teachers, do you pay them extra for it? We do pay them for their time outside of the school day, but we also create opportunities during the school day for them to get together and meet um, and, and discuss these big ideas. So it's a combination of the two. One big shift in Revere as compared to other school districts that I've worked in and other school districts that I know about is that in Revere, teachers aren't given administrative duties. So in trying to value teachers' time as teachers, intellectuals, as professionals, teachers in Revere aren't asked to watch the lunchroom. We aren't asked to do bathroom duty or things like that in order to maximize the time we have within our school day to engage in professional activities. And does, but if, if you don't, I mean, I assume that in places where teachers are required to do that, it's partly a budget problem. So how have you overcome the budget problem? Well, I think it's a, it, it pieces of it, it are budget, but it's also just a longstanding tradition that people haven't found ways to let go of. Um, oh, where, I see. You think that it just, there's like people are used to asking teachers to watch the lunchroom and so they keep asking them to. And if you rethink it, you can. You don't need to. Right. If you look at teacher contracts from 30, 40, 50 years ago, you'll see that it describes the teacher day typically as um, five teaching periods, one prep, and a duty. And the duty is typically lunch duty or bathroom duty or overseeing a discipline hall for kids who get in trouble, things, like, things of that nature. And we've entirely restructured our day, particularly at the high school, but also our middle schools are moving to longer block periods. And uh, we, instead of having teachers do those kinds of tasks, we assign them to collaborate with their colleagues. And that makes a huge shift in their own practice in the classroom when they have that opportunity to work together to develop effective lessons and talk about what worked and what didn't work and refine and revise their craft. So when you showed up, Will, I'm wondering whether there were teachers who were uh, set in their ways and not particularly excited about being told to rethink how they're doing stuff or whether the opposite, that they were actually thrilled that they were being treated this way. I think that in, in any system, and I think schools are sometimes given, we, we focus a little bit too much on these, maybe that some teachers are set in their ways, um, and that this is, this is true in any organization. So I think the, the thing to look at is not necessarily that there are some teachers that are maybe a little bit resistant to this, because Revere isn't perfect, but rather that there are so many teachers who are embracing this and in, engaging in the opportunity to innovate, to share best practices, that this is, that although the culture isn't completely pervasive, that it's pervasive enough that, for example, um, you know, I think about the example that we gave in our ed talk where a group of math teachers got together after several years of a successful collaboration with the, the Massachusetts Math and Science Initiative, 
and said that we like what they're doing, but we think that we can do it better. And importantly, in a time of tight budgets, we can do it for cheaper. Um, and these teachers created this proposal, proposed it to Diane, um, or was it? It was, was actually Dr. Dakin yeah, at the Dr. time. Dakin. Um, and, and this sort of culture of innovation and of teacher leadership sort of grew this opportunity by itself. There were some teachers who were skeptical of, uh, of, the, of the new ideas. Uh, change is difficult for everybody. Um, but they've, they've all come on board. They've seen the difference in what it makes when they now have um, the way our schedule is now structured. There's a four-period student day at the high school. One of those periods is the teacher's prep period. It's 80 minutes long. In a traditional schedule, teachers have about 45 minutes of prep a day. And then in addition to those four periods, we have um, an extra smaller block that on three days a week, the teachers meet with a small group of students that are their advisory students. They stay with the same kids for four years, so they really develop a lasting bond with those kids. There are about 12 to 15 kids in each group. On the other two days, the kids come in later, and the teachers have their common planning period. And so they're able to do more work together both through the common planning period but also because they now have an 80-minute block where they have time to do their own work, they tend to organically move toward their peers more during those periods and do more common planning. Well, how would you assess the change, the growth that has occurred uh, for you as a teacher and generally for teachers in Revere given this unusual approach uh, and focus on uh, teacher development? So I certainly see a number of different changes that have occurred in my own practice over the past two years as I have attempted to adopt this student-centered learning model and tried to encourage my students to speak and write about mathematics. And a lot of that is because of the amazing work of the colleagues I've had in the professional development that I've gotten in Revere. So I, th I think that if you looked at what I was doing two years ago in my classroom and what I'm doing now, that there, you would be surprised that this was the same teacher. And, um, and that also maybe is reflective of because I'm a little bit earlier in my career, but even when I look at my, my colleagues within the math department and outside of it, teachers just have such a commitment to, to trying things out in their classroom to, to see what works to improve. And, and so I think that if you ask any teacher in, in Revere High School, like, have you, have you improved because of these structures? I think absolutely they would say yes. And so, Diane, that must pose quite a challenge, this endless dynamism. How do you sustain it? Yeah, it is a challenge. Um, I think that the, the most important thing is engaging teachers in the discussion at the decision-making level of what the next step is, what the next professional development is, how we can move forward. Um, we are always careful to make sure that... Um, teachers are part of every decision we make, and that includes the union leadership. The president of the Revere Teachers Union sits on the Revere Educators Leadership Board, so he's right there every time the board is making decisions, and um, even other members of the union obviously are on all of the councils that oversee the different uh, areas of our change and growth. So um, it's important that we all work together and collaborate, and we've been fortunate in Revere to have some strong union leadership who's been, who understands that the most important thing is what the kids need and that we make all of our decisions based on what is best for the kids. Was there union resistance to what you've done? 
Um, I they, I wouldn't say union resistance. No, there have been um, pockets of well, why are we doing that? Maybe we should try this differently. And you know, we work together on those things and iron and iron those things out. But there's never been any major union resistance to moving to more of a student-centered approach. Uh, Eric Faring, who's our union president, is the co-chair of the Mass Consortium for Innovative Educational Assessment. So that's huge to have him on leadership with that team in, in moving that initiative forward. And, and let me ask you this. So teachers now are developing these, these curricula. Is there a sense among certain teachers that their individual styles are squelched as a result of this new thing, or it, does it empower them more? It empowers them more, and that was a concern initially that people would be Told that their individuality do. would right. be stifled. But I, th- you know, in practice, they learn, they come to see that how much more valuable the time is, and that talking to colleagues just makes their own practice better. And it doesn't mean that they have to adopt this routine set of scripted lessons by any means. They talk about the big ideas and good ways to help kids understand the big ideas, and then they implement them how they see fit. And they come together frequently and say, you know what, this really worked well for me, you ought to try it. And it's great for the newer teachers to have the veterans who have so much knowledge and experience already to weigh into those ideas before they go too far down the path of lesson planning or program development. And I think a good example of this is, and and what Diane's really talking about, is that we're not necessarily sharing specific lesson plans so much as strategies we use within our classroom. Research shows that teachers are the single most important school-based part of a student's education. And that's why I think it's so important that in Revere, teachers are valued as professionals. And I see Diane pulling out some data. Um, so I'll let her talk <laughs> I, I about I did, that. yes. I'll speak to the same. So I, I first want to uh, make a comment about all of this. I think how the students react, how the teachers react, how they behave, how everybody behaves, how we interact with each other is so related to the culture of the district, of the school of the classroom, all of them. They were all microcosms of society. But um, I think the fact that we have high expectations for everybody and make that a part of our practice, both of how we, you know, what we expect from teachers, what we expect from kids, what teachers expect from kids, it all is part of one system. So when you have a system that devalues teachers and leaves teachers feeling disengaged, they are going to be less likely to help the kids achieve at the levels that the kids need to. And when kids have learning gaps, that becomes amplified because those kids are already starting at a disadvantage. So it behooves us to have teachers that are so highly invested in these students' success. When we dictate to them, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do it the other way, you need to do this, the teachers become disenfranchised, and then the kids can't achieve at the level that we want them to. So I I mentioned before that Revere has some challenging demographics. 78% of our kids are low income. 55% of them have English is not their first language. And when we started to reshape our own belief as a district to become the best urban district in the state, if I go back to 1998, just 22% of our kids were scoring advanced or proficient on the English MCAS. In 2016, that was 84%. Yeah, that's very impressive. Yeah. And the, and, and the math was similar, not quite as strong, but similar. Um, in 1998, only 13% of our kids scored advanced or proficient. And last year, that was 68%. So I, I think that there is evidence that these ideas work. And that comes from empowering the kids to have voice in their own learning, empowering the teachers to innovate and uh, try different things and 
helping everybody feel like we're all in this together. We're one team. And that's something that I think has been missing in both the state dialogue and the national dialogue about public education. All we hear about is failing schools. The blame is put on teachers for why the schools are failing. There's this narrative that teachers don't work hard enough and don't work a long enough day and don't work a long enough year and all of these other pieces. Um, I think that's one of our it's one of the things that disappoints me the most professionally because I see an entirely different story. I see tireless teachers who give absolutely everything for their kids. And I see kids who reach levels that people would have said were unsurmountable considering their background. Kids coming from war-torn countries, not speaking the language, maybe without their parents, maybe having lost their parents, maybe having witnessed the death of their parents. Tragic events, traumatic events that these kids are overcoming, but when you wrap the services of social workers and others around them, but still say, you need to take algebra and geometry and advanced algebra before you graduate high school, the kids are better off. Is there tension between the attention you need to pay to these real family and social and personal issues emotional issues and the academic skills you're trying to instill in them? I mean, you only have six hours a day. Right. And the, and the tension is um, primarily budgetary, to be honest with you. We can't afford to hire as many um, social workers and others as we really need in the district. But uh, And we do only have six hours a day. But we know that if the kids are not emotionally ready to learn, they're not going to learn. So we have to address that. And does it mean that sometimes some of these kids, especially the ones who are experiencing particularly troublesome emotional situations, are going to miss some class time? It absolutely means that. That also means that the teacher is going to work with them outside of class time to get them caught up when they're ready to learn. So it um, means increasing the number of hours, effectively, that everyone has to work. It does, or finding other ways to do it. Um, a lot of the teachers will post their notes on Schoology. So if a student misses a class period because they had a group session with a social worker, they can look at the notes on Schoology, try to get themselves as caught up as they can, and then come to the teacher with the two or three particular questions that they weren't able to uh, get on their own. And, and by helping the kids to understand that's what the expectation is and the kids will reach out to each other because we've established a culture where everybody is helping everybody. You don't have to go to the teacher. They're not the only expert. Everybody in the classroom is learning together. Everybody's encouraged to talk to each other. Uh, when you think about a lot of classrooms of the past, kids were expected to come in, sit in rows, be quiet, listen to the teacher, take notes, and God willing, they learned. So let's go back to the dissidents for a second. Did, did, did people leave? Did teachers leave out of frustration because they, they didn't want part of all of this extra work? No, they didn't. Teachers really have embraced it. I think that people who become teachers have this at, at, at their core when they begin teaching. And I think that uh, sometimes when teachers are not empowered or valued, they grow frustrated over time and they don't see uh, the sense of success and satisfaction that they hoped they would see or that they maybe saw a little bit when they were initially teaching. And, um, and, and has your system attracted teachers to, try to, to apply? Are you getting more applicants? Absolutely. We've had I, at least four or five teachers that I've signed this year. I've said, you know, why do you want to come to Revere? And they've said, well, I've heard really great things about what you do with teachers. So 
that's encouraging. We also have had a number of teachers who have left for personal reasons, whether they of moved course. or, or no, whatever, and have then come back uh-huh. and said, I have to get back to Riviera. You know, <laughs> but, so we love that. You know, that's a great success story. And we have a number of kids, graduates, who teach for us. And that's incredible. I think at the high school alone, we've got about 13 teachers who are graduates of Riviera High School. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. One area that our district is focusing on is this idea of getting students to collaborate successfully together, to be able to communicate. Um, and, and this idea of explicitly teaching group work across a variety of academic settings is, I think, a skill that, that will serve our students no matter where they go. I agree with you, but I mean, to some extent, that's a kind of social skill that you're, you, you're trying to uh, teach them. And I'm wondering how you learn to teach them that, because that's not math. That's a great question. I, I spend a lot of time talking with my colleagues in the math department about how they're doing this work. Um, and, you know, some of it is, I think, from my personal experience, uh, through our, our grant from Nellie May at the high school, I was able to take the Making Student Thinking Visible course, which really is about how do you encourage students to talk to each other about academic subjects. And this is something that I think has pretty significantly impacted the way I teach. And it's got to be a huge challenge because the, the sort of it's uncool to talk that way to one another in, in many settings, right? That might be what kids think, but I also think that kids just have a lot to say. Like kids want to talk. And that another, another aspect of student-centered learning in addition to choice is putting students at the center of instruction. So I imagine that, you know, when I went to high school, probably when you went to high school as well, you went into math class, you took notes, maybe you reviewed homework problems, and then you left, and on Friday there was a test. And in my class, the reality is like much of my time in class is structured so that students are working with each other, so that it's not me sitting up at the board talking at them as they're sort of like snoozing in the back. Because kids, kids want to move around, they want to talk to each other, and I think we don't give them enough credit for their natural desire to solve problems, to engage, to think. So that's interesting. You're saying that your classroom activity is is typically collaborative. I mean, you don't you try not to have a lecture situation. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. And in fact, um, at the beginning of the year, I explicitly talk to students that you know one thing that's common in some classrooms these days is that kids listen to music while they're working because of the ubiquity of you know phones and music devices. And I say that's just never allowed because in my mind, math is a social activity. It's a collaborative activity, and so we. Independent work time does not exist in my class. The only time that you'll ever be working independently is during a quiz or a test. And I think what Will describes is what you see in a lot of classrooms at Riviera High School. We have moved in that direction of if you want kids to talk, you have to give them opportunities to talk. If you want kids to be able to use high-level mathematical or biological or physical, whatever whatever subject it is, use the, the vo- vocabulary and language of the subject area, then you have to give them time to talk about the content. And the way to do that is not to have them in rows and demand silence for the entire class period. So, I mean, what you, what you guys describe as what's going on in Revere sounds terrific. And what I, do you know, Diane, whether there uh, is research beyond Revere to show that this level of teacher uh, involvement 
uh, improves student performance? Oh, absolutely. I, th there's a huge body of research about teacher collaboration and student collaboration and, and the impact, the positive impact that it does have on student achievement. Uh, we're, we're constantly being compared as a country, but also as, a, as the state to places like Singapore. If you go to Singapore, the teachers, their school day, which is maybe seven or eight hours, I think it's a little bit longer than ours, the teachers teach for half of that time and they collaborate with their peers for the other half of that time. So that's, you know, one of the greatest divides I always look at when we talk about education in America is that we don't give our teachers the opportunity to hone their craft the way that we do, the way that other countries do, or the way that other professions do. You know, I, I liken our educators to the medical profession um, because they're charged with diagnosing gaps in student understanding and then finding a fix that's going to close that gap, which could be different from student to student to student. And I think that doctors do a similar thing for their patients, but they meet regularly as a team and talk together about what each of those individual doctors knows is going to help this patient. And those are opportunities that we don't give our teachers enough of. And so that's why one of our uh, our big steps in Revere has been to incorpor incorporate common planning and increase the amount of um, time that teachers have to collaborate with their colleagues. You know, you bring up Singapore, and when I used to cover education, one of the things I would write about is these um, international comparisons, of course, of, of scores. And, of course, Singapore and countries like that are always um, always score so well. But there was, there was this corollary which was interesting, and I'm wondering how you think about it, which was that, yes, it's true that we score, we the United States, lower, but they are all envious of the creativity and the productivity in this country. And the question was, wh why do you have high test scores in one country and, you know, Apple and Microsoft in the other? I mean, there was some notion that the Wild West nature of American society, the unstructured quality of it, may be led to lower test scores, but led to a more successful society. And that's, uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about it. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about it. <laughs> <laughs> we could do another podcast, but um, I'll say this. I think that... Um, when things are too structured or when we rely only on a particular set of data to categorize and define schools and districts and students, we make a huge mistake because we're not really looking at a whole picture. Um, like Will, my back background is in mathematics. So I know that I can take a d data set and tell you six different stories depending on who the audience is and it's going to please any one of them. Um, they could be very different from each other. And so I think it's really important that we look not at one data point to try to define schools and define students. And, you know, that's, that's something that we need to work on. That's an area that we could get better on in Massachusetts. We're actually part of the, um, the Massachusetts Consortium for Innovative Educational Assessment. Uh, we're one of nine districts that are partnering with the Center for Collaborative Education on looking at different ways to assess schools, particularly using um, student surveys, parent surveys. So beyond MCAS. Beyond MCAS, yeah. looking at other ways and using uh, performance assessments to judge students' understanding. And what does it mean? What's a performance assessment? What does it mean if it's not an MCAS or an equivalent test? That's right. It means that it's harder to grade. And it's a little bit different from place to place. So it's a little bit more difficult to compare 
Cambridge to Boston to Riviere to Chelsea to Everett. It's not as neat and clean a package as when everybody's asked the same question and judged by how many percentages of kids scored answered correctly or incorrectly or, or what have you. It's a little bit messier, but there are ways that we can trust each other um, to effectively assess whether or not students have achieved a proficient or an advanced level of knowledge and understanding in a particular content. And where are we in that attempt to find alternative means of uh, assessment? Uh, we did we did some pilot work this year. All of the districts that are involved in the consortium piloted some of the performance assessments. Go, the teachers are going to work on refining them next year. So what, we, I mean, what's involved? Someone visits a classroom and talks to students? What's involved? No, uh, what, they, what they've been working on is more... Um, Writing the kind of assessment prompt that I described before where the students have some choice in how they're going to respond to the prompt. And this is across all different disciplines. There's a rubric associated with it so that different people using the same prompt can understand what the expectations are for success. So it's a uh, sort of more flexible version of an exam. Exactly. And yeah. I think one important thing to mention is that performance assessments are grounded in the same standards that MCAS is. So the Massachusetts... Um, state standards for English and mathematics are what undergirds MCAS, and that in a performance assessment, that those very same standards are what we would be assessing students on. So it isn't that we've changed in any way the the level of rigor or the the knowledge, the body of knowledge that we want students to learn, but we've changed the way that we're assessing it. And we've actually, for kids, increased the rigor because we've put more of the onus on them to decide how they're going to demonstrate their knowledge. And in order to do that, they need to have the knowledge. So um, I think giving kids the opportunity to take ownership of their learning and ownership of um, the curriculum is a really important step in helping them achieve at high levels. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, the debate is between whether people are beasts to be tamed or flowers to be cultivated. And obviously, both are sort of true. Uh, and you know, whenever it leans in one direction more than in the too much, and rather than the other, there has to be pulled back and pushed yeah. around. It's a, that's a great analogy because one of the things that we talked a lot about in our Boston Ed Talk was this whole piece about educator evaluation, which has been very contentious in the state and across the nation. And in Revere, um, another way that we demonstrated our belief in teacher leadership is that we had teachers actually develop the new system for Revere, and then they trained the principals on how to evaluate teachers. Um, so it was a little bit of a flipped dynamic, but um, what it did was it really made teachers embrace evaluation, which we don't use that term. We call it growth. We have an educated growth system. <laughs> that's interesting. In other yeah. words, you're, you're talking about the, the delta rather than... That's right. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that's and that's what's really important, but it speaks to the idea that we, we already think that you're an expert teacher, um, so now we're just going to come in and try to help you hone your skills and become even, uh, even, even better at instructing these diverse students that appear before us every day. And, um, you know, when we approached it in that way, we had things like, you know, when, we, when, when teachers were asked, um, does educator evaluation, and it was a state term, this was a state survey, so I'm going to use their term, um, does it uh, improve the impact on student learning? Across the state, it was roughly 43% of teachers that agreed or strongly agreed. In Revia, that number went up to 84%. So it's a, it's a significant difference. And the same 
other questions they were asked is, does the educator evaluation system improve teacher practice? The numbers across the state were at about uh, 56, and in Revere, they were at about 84. But so one issue that arises uh, often in the last 20 years, at least as I've been paying attention to education, is the insistence or the assertion by the business community that we need to run schools more like businesses and we need to um, reward those who do especially well. Is that going on? Is there a notion that teachers who do better should be paid better for what they do? Um, that's a, that's a tricky question. It is. Um, that's why I asked it. Yeah. It's, it's a tough question. I think that people think because they attended school, they know everything about how schools run. And it's one of the challenges that we encounter when everybody feels like they're an expert in the field that we have really studied many years to become experts in. Um, and so people want to apply a business model to schools. And one of the reasons I think that is a huge mistake is because our students are not commodities. And when you look at a successful business, you look at an organization that creates some kind of a product and then is successful in helping people believe that they want to buy it. In schools, it, I don't like to compare students to products because every one of them is different. And, you know, there's an analogy that you can find on the internet. I don't know who to give credit to, but they talk about um, owning a produce farm or produce company. And when the farmers come in, if you don't like the blueberries, you send them back and say, these are no good. We don't take our blueberries and send them back. We take everyone in as they are, and we work with every one of them individually, and they're all unique, and they all have different needs, and they all have different supports, and we help each one of them try to become as successful as they can be. And there is no clean business model that describes that kind of a dynamic. I understand what you're saying, but does that mean that there are no elements of business that uh, that would be worthwhile? I mean, all I'm asking about is, is if it turns out that uh, certain teachers do better, ought they to be rewarded with pay? So I think that that there is a lot more than just pay within teaching. And we don't, I think, have the time to really discuss this. But one solution that has, or one way to address this is basically through career ladders. So in Revere, one thing that we offer teachers is the opportunity to basically become a master teacher for a year. And that's a way to acknowledge the great work that they've done and to spread that that work that they've done throughout our district. And being a master teacher allows you to help other teachers as opposed to run a classroom for a year? That's right. It's actually for three. They they sign on for a three-year session. Um, they identify their area of expertise, and other teachers say, I'd like to work with you and get better in that area. And so they're relieved with their classroom duties um, for their three-year cycle, and they spend all of their time in other teachers' classrooms collaborating with them, it's another way to embed the professional development and professionalize the teachers. Um, one of the challenges in education is the only real way to uh, be promoted is to move out of the classroom, to become an administrator, do something like that. This gives teachers an opportunity to experience that leadership without entirely giving up teaching, which many people don't want to do. I understand. You know? so, uh, so in essence, we're not looking to pay people more for better scores of their students. I think that every teacher should be paid more. I think it's really hard right. to look at student scores and say, oh, that's that's because of that teacher okay. and not because of... I'm not this. advocating it. I'm just okay, asking. Yeah. 
And so both of you uh, presented your ideas at the Boston Ed Talks in 2017. Tell us what that was like for you, how uh, you thought that, uh, what that contributed to your own development, to be part of that. So for, for me, it was just incredible to meet all of the other educators who were part of the Boston Ed Talks. That was uh, my first experience with Boston Ed Talks. I had, we had other teachers in our district who had mentioned it before and had attended. And when we mentioned that Will and I were going to present there, they were like, oh, my God, it's incredible. And, and they were right. Um, just it really renews the spirit to know how many people out there are doing this kind of work, are dedicated to it, are all in, just want the kids to do the best that they can, and will do anything to help the kids get there. And these were teachers from all different areas uh, in Greater Boston. So there are still teachers that we that we occasionally email with, and um, you know, it just it renews the spirit to know that there's more of this work going on out there. So I think that the 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 amazing thing about the Boston Ed Talks is that it gives a platform to to teachers to share the ideas in their classroom, in their district. And personally, professional development is something that I am incredibly passionate about. Uh, and I think it is in many ways one of the parts of the secret sauce that will truly be able to, to make all schools and students be successful. And so it was, it was an incredible opportunity to present the work that's happening in Revere that I'm so proud of, that I'm part of, and and to share that idea with other schools in the hopes that they those teachers might take it back to their classrooms and those administrators might take it back to their schools in order to in order to improve what's happening there um, so it, for both of you as you uh, look at the experience of revere and you think about uh, how to help your colleagues in other uh, school systems and districts what do you say to them well i i guess what i would say um is have faith and 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 build trust. Uh, you've got to empower teachers. They need to be part of the decision-making process or whatever decisions you're making just aren't going to be implemented faithfully. I mean, it sounds to me too like the, the values that you're seeking to instill in your students by living them in a collaborative mm -hmm. fashion and by offering uh, decision-making to people who were not always part of that process on some level the essence of a democratic society is being lived, ideally, in the education system. And it's so you're producing both more informed and, and uh, more involved citizens. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's really important to teach kids how to have a voice. And I think that's one of the important pieces to the different kind of work that we're doing in Revere. Well, I congratulate you both, and I thank you both uh, for taking part in the Boston Ed Talks of 2017 and in this podcast. Thank you. To watch the Ed Talk discussed in this podcast and learn about future Ed Talks, go to www.bostonedtalks.org. You can also find the Boston Ed Talks on the Boston Foundation's YouTube channel, on Twitter, at Boston Ed Talks, and on Facebook.